Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Emily Strauss, clinical professor of law at Duke University. We'll be discussing your paper, Is Everything Securities Fraud? I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Emily, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Emily, let's start with your title. Uh, There's a joke that everything is securities fraud, and it's a joke that's funny because it's partly true. What does the joke mean, and what's the truth to it? I learned of this joke from a Bloomberg columnist called Matt Levine, who has written a series of columns about this. And basically, the subject is everything is securities fraud. And the idea basically is that when a company does a bad thing, it's often also sued for securities fraud, irrespective of whether the underlying bad thing actually seems on its face to primarily harm investors. So for example, let's say that we have a drug company that's selling contaminated children's Tylenol. When you think about who the victim of that conduct is, you probably think that it's the people who buy and take Tylenol and risk getting sick because of the contaminants. Here's another example. If you're an energy company and let's say one of your oil rigs explodes, most people would probably think that the primary victims of that conduct are the people who are living on the coast or the environment or the employees whose lives were endangered by the explosion. For example, if a company makes a battery-operated car and uses batteries that occasionally explode or acceleration pedals that get stuck, you'd think that the victims are the buyers of those cars. And you might think, oh, come on, this is not really securities fraud. This is a job for the FDA or the EPA or the NHTSA. But the thing is that whenever these kinds of disasters occur, the stock price of the company drops. And very often, the shareholders of the drug company or the oil company or the car company will sue for this misconduct under the federal securities laws for money that they lose when this happens. And the theory is generally that the company either knew or recklessly disregarded the risk of whatever disaster occurred and lied about it or failed to disclose it when they were obligated to do so. And so we have this alchemy whereby virtually any corporate misconduct becomes securities fraud. With that joke kind of explained, what research questions did you set out to answer in this article and what methods and data sources did you use in that process? There's been quite a bit of commentary about these kinds of lawsuits lately, and anecdotally, they seem to be getting more common in recent years. But so far, even though there are some studies that look at what happens when the stock price of a company drops and when investors sue, no one has really dug into exactly how many of these cases there are or what kinds of outcomes they're associated with, or what other characteristics they share. So those are the questions that I set out to examine. And to do that, I use a sample of securities class actions from the Stanford Securities Class Action Database, and my sample goes from 2010 to 2015. And I use these years because securities class actions can take a really long time to work through the courts, and I wanted to be able to examine outcomes. I didn't want to have to deal with lots of cases that were still in progress. And I dropped cases that were remanded to state court. I dropped cases where defendant firms were financial services companies. This is fairly common in the literature. And I dropped merger challenges because that just seems to implicate a different kind of potential misconduct. With this sample, I marched through the remaining cases and I read the most recent complaint for each action and I coded whether the primary victim of the misconduct seemed to be the shareholders or some other constituency. So, for example, a case that I would code shareholder harm might be one where the defendant firm overstates the likelihood of FDA approval for an investigational drug, 
or where the defendant firm lies about projected market demand for a flagship product. Those are misstatements that seem to clearly implicate investors. I would probably code as harm to other victims a case where a defendant firm, for example, manufactures cars using a battery that it allegedly knows explodes some percent of the time, or where the defendant knowingly sells a well-known over-the-counter meditation full of contaminants despite a warning letter from the FDA. As I just stated in our introduction, I think that these kinds of cases really involve primarily victims other than investors. So in addition to doing that coding, I gathered a bunch of other information about these cases. I got data on total assets and financials from CompuStat. I got data on financial restatements from audit analytics. Um, Financial restatements during the class period are used in other studies as hard evidence of fraud, as sort of an indicator of merit of case. I got data on dismissals, settlements, lead plaintiffs, and whether there was an investigation at the time of the most recent complaint from court filings. And I got those from the Stanford database or from PACER. I also looked into SEC investigations, and those I got either from the most recent complaint on PACER or from the database or from audit analytics. Data on government and other victim recoveries, which is, you know, whether the primary victims of the misconduct actually recovered any money after the fact or whether the government recovered any money in a regulatory action after the fact, I found from media searches. So I went online and looked for press releases, news articles, those kinds of things. With that empirical work in mind, I wondered if we could maybe turn to some of your key results. Uh, What did you find? Is everything securities fraud? Well, it's a little complicated. So I found that about 16.5% of my sample cases are cases where the primary harm is to someone other than shareholders. So as an initial takeaway, it does turn out that most securities class actions do involve conduct that harms primarily shareholders. And that makes sense. And that should be a relief to a lot of people who are worried that these kinds of lawsuits are spinning out of control. But I did find that these 16.5% of cases share some interesting characteristics. They are less likely to be dismissed than cases that involve primarily harm to shareholders. Cases that involve primarily harm to shareholders are dismissed at about a 54% rate, and it's 36%. For cases that harm primarily other victims. And if I go in and I do regressions and I control for a lot of other factors, it turns out that across the board, across specifications and with and without controls, cases involving harm primarily to other victims are about 20% less likely to be dismissed. And those findings are significant at 5% level. So that's the first thing, that these cases are less likely to be dismissed. Second, they're likely to settle for higher amounts. The average settlement in a harm to shareholders case is about $7 million, and the average settlement for a case that harms primarily other victims is about $24 million. And again, these results are statistically significant at 5% level. Some other interesting findings are that the cases where the misconduct harms primarily other victims tend to have much larger defendants. The average defendant firm for a shareholder harm case has total assets of about $8 billion. It's about $29 billion for the cases that harm primarily other victims. And these cases are much more likely to have an institutional investor as a lead plaintiff and to involve a top-tier plaintiff's law firm. In about 40% of the cases where the harm primarily involves shareholders, only about 40% of those cases involve an institutional investor in a top-tier plaintiff's law firm, whereas it's about 70% for the cases where the misconduct primarily harms other victims. The final interesting characteristic about these cases is that the cases where the harm involves primarily other victims are dramatically more likely to involve a parallel non-SEC investigation. It's 70% versus about 4%, so that's quite a lot. In the paper, you look at the possibility that some of the securities actions involving other victims 
might be opportunistic. I wonder if you could talk about what some of the normative and policy implications of that might be if, if that, in fact, is the case. So I'm going to back up a little bit first. I think that these cases are driven by a couple of different things. I think one reason that we get them might be the obvious, which is that firms that are depraved enough to externalize costs to third parties are also depraved enough to lie to their shareholders about it. I think another reason that we might get them is that the disasters that give rise to these kinds of lawsuits represent the manifestation of some kind of tail risk that the firm did not think would actually happen, but did. But as you said, I think that a complementary reason that we might get these cases is because the defendant firms are attractive litigation targets. And the reason that I think these cases might be opportunistic is that they are predominantly against very large firms, and they overwhelmingly involve non-SEC government investigations. We know from previous literature and kind of from common sense that SEC investigations in particular really increase your odds of a successful litigation outcome as a plaintiff, in part because it gives you a lot of nice facts that you can plead in a complaint to overcome the hurdles in the PSLRA. And based on my data, it looks like non-SEC investigations have a similar, although a less strong effect. So it's possible that shareholder plaintiffs may be deliberately selecting large firms experiencing non-SEC investigations because even though they're not associated as strongly with positive outcomes as SEC investigations, a non-SEC investigation is better than nothing and you could win really big because the defendant firm is very large. And if you think that that's what's happening, that the misconduct by the firm often does not involve actual fraud against shareholders and that these lawsuits are the brainchildren of opportunistic plaintiff's lawyers, then you would argue that they should be curtailed. And we see quite a bit of commentary by folks in the industry particularly, but also some academics making exactly this argument. And they are recommending things like damages caps. But one thing that I think my data shows is that if you really wanted to get rid of these cases, limiting plaintiffs' abilities to use non-SEC investigations in their complaints would probably do the job. I personally think that's too blunt an instrument, but my sample shows that these cases almost universally involve non-SEC investigations, and this is, I think, partly what makes them so appealing to plaintiffs. Do we need reform in the event-driven litigation space, as you maybe allude to a little bit? Are there reforms that we should be thinking about or that you would propose, and what might they mean in terms of litigation impacts and effects on potential tort victims, which you discuss quite a bit in the paper, but also on shareholders or corporate governance? I think there are a lot of ways of thinking about this question. And so far, there seem to be two main schools of thought on reform. And as you might expect, each of them is fairly extreme. One is composed of industry professionals and defense lawyers who say, hey, these are opportunistic lawsuits. They just benefit plaintiff's lawyers and we should get rid of them. The other is composed of plaintiff's lawyers. And they say, hey, you know, often these shareholders actually are defrauded and courts can tell the good cases from the bad ones. And so the current system is just fine the way it is. I think that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I think there are some ways that these cases could perform a valuable function and some ways in which they really don't work very well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I think it's possible that these cases might help deter companies from doing bad things to third parties. They generally can make the costs of bad conduct higher. And so in that way, they can serve sort of a general deterrence function. A more specific reason that I think they might have value is because in my sample, there's a subset of event-driven cases where only the shareholders recovered, where the primary victims of the misconduct and regulators didn't recover anything, and the only punishment that the firm really had to bear was from the shareholder litigation. And so it could be that these lawsuits impose penalties on firms for misconduct where other parties really have difficulty doing so for whatever reason. I do think there are some caveats to that conclusion. First, it can be difficult to tell based on the data that's available 
whether the primary victims of the misconduct ever recovered. A lot of those settlements are private. So there's an extent to which we just don't always know. But the other possibility is that these settlements might be nuisance settlements and regulators and primary victims did not recover because the firm didn't really do anything that bad. So I think that there is a possibility that these cases serve a deterrence function, but it's difficult to know how extensive that is. I don't think these cases perform very well as a compensation mechanism. They obviously don't compensate the primary victims of the misconduct. And a lot of scholars in general think that securities class actions generally don't even compensate shareholders that effectively. So I don't think they do a good job from that perspective. Finally, I don't think that these cases perform optimally as monitoring mechanisms for preventing third-party harm. And I think this for a couple of reasons. The first and most obvious reason is that you can only sue after the third party is actually harmed. And to the extent that we want to prevent firms from externalizing their costs onto third parties in the first instance, this is not really ideal. Second, I think that a lot of the misconduct that harms third parties might actually benefit shareholders if the company does not get caught. So for instance, things like cost-cutting measures that could compromise safety might actually raise share price. Shareholders might rationally prefer their managers to externalize costs to third parties as long as the likelihood that they will get caught is low. And to the extent that they might be able to recoup some portion of their losses after the management is caught by bringing a securities class action, I think this exacerbates those incentives. And finally, I don't think that these lawsuits always do a very good job of forcing companies to tell investors and really the general public a lot of the information that we would like to know about potential risks to third parties. Other scholars have commented that, you know, under the current securities laws, you don't actually have to disclose that much about these kinds of risks. And firms often reduce their exposure to liability by being very vague about potential catastrophic risks or just by not saying anything. So in terms of policy prescriptions, I think that one of the most helpful things we can do is find a way to get companies to make more useful disclosures about the potential risks to outsiders, particularly the risks of the kinds of catastrophes that we see when, for example, an oil rig explodes. This could be tricky to do, but it could help third parties, and it might make these cases more useful if the disclosures that they are enforcing were of more value to the public in general. I think there are a couple of ways that you could do this. You could ask companies to make more specific and specifically identifying disclosures about the kinds of risks that they might be creating for third parties. I think that would be difficult because those risks are difficult to calculate. But I think another thing that we could do is mandate different kinds of ESG disclosures that require companies to disclose what they are doing to protect third parties more broadly, probably within an ESG framework. And in general, those kinds of disclosures would probably be more useful in helping the public in general and investors in particular monitor companies' conduct with respect to outsiders. Are there any key takeaways or open questions you would like our listeners to be thinking about as it relates to this article or this interview? Absolutely. So I think the most interesting question by far is how this area of litigation is evolving. My sample is from 2010 to 2015 for the reasons that I discussed. And the number of these cases in those years is actually relatively stable. There are no major increasing or decreasing trends. In terms of who we see those cases being brought against, a lot of the cases are against defendants in the healthcare or pharma industries. It's not exclusive, but they account for quite a few of them. I'm planning to do some follow-up work to see what happens to these trends after my sample period, because I think that could be really interesting. And as I mentioned, quite a few commentators seem to think the number of these cases is increasing. Are there more of these cases these days? 
Do they continue to be more successful than shareholder harm cases? Do they continue to be brought by institutional investors and top-tier plaintiffs' firms? Some commentators think that this is not the case. Is there industry variation? Are these becoming cases that are brought against different kinds of industries? If so, what accounts for it? It's possible that data privacy is a bigger deal these days than in the cases in my sample. So yes, I think that there are a lot of open questions and a lot of avenues for follow-up work. Our guest today has been Emily Strauss, clinical professor of law at Duke University. We've discussed her paper, Is Everything Securities Fraud? I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Emily, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We'll let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.